0: Oh the phone is dark as opposed to the uh, not th- okay, gotcha. Do you want me to start off with uh, the title? Or do you want to talk and then go to the title? Okay. You can you can you can start with the title and then when I start talking you can take it off the title, okay? Yeah. <coughs> okay. You good, Steve? Well, God bless you. This is the third and final teaching in the Holiness is Fun series, and we're still dealing with how to make moral or holy choices according to God's Word. We saw that the world determines what is morally right by one or more of the following standards. They look at it through what is personal preference, convenience, pleasure, and cultural consensus. These four are the bedrock of how the world makes its moral choices. And often, because of this particular approach, their choices go astray. The backdrop to this way of approaching morality is the belief that there is no standard for truth outside the person choosing. The backdrop is that there is no real absolute truth. Now let's compare this to godly morality and to holiness. That's a result of looking at life the way God describes it and accepting God's assessment of that which is good and evil. Now, I know this goes against man's proud nature. Everybody wants to be just like Adam and Eve who wanted to decide good and evil for themselves, independent of God. But that never works. That never works. We have Jesus Christ as our Lord, and we have God's Word as our guide, and that's how we are able to make holy choices in our life. And a holy life is a life that is enjoyable beyond anything you can imagine. It is a life that God blesses. In our last teaching, we saw how Jesus handled the twisted morality of divorce within the first century, which hasn't changed much in the 21st century. And then we looked at a couple of modern examples of moral choices about work and drunkenness so that you could see how the world makes the moral choices and how we might make it according to God's Word. Now I want to cover with you sexual holiness and morality, both from God's perspective and the world's perspective. Now, as you can imagine, the two perspectives are quite different. I can tell you, as someone who has been Counseling people for almost 40 years, the world's morality may look like fun, but it ends up in pain. So let's look at some issues of sexual morality. And I, wa- I want to start with pornography and prostitution. How, how would we look at pornography and prostitution as a moral choice? I suppose this would probably be a good time to talk about the difference between sin and a crime. Because I'm interested in a walk of holiness. I'm not really interested in the laws of the land. God deals with sin. Sin in God's Word is missing the mark in life and rejecting God's will to follow your own will, something that will always fail because we were never designed to be Lord of our own lives. God gave to Jesus Christ the role of being the Lord in our lives. And it only works when we follow the lead of our Lord. Sin affects and damages your life in multiple ways. In fact, one of the common denominators of anything that God calls sin is that it is damaging and it is a choice. Now, sin is damaging even if you don't see it immediately. I still remember my mother telling me from the 1930s in New York City every Buster Brown shoe store had an x-ray machine in it so that you could put on the Buster Brown shoe, you could stick your foot in the x-ray machine and see just how well it fit. Nobody knew that this was killing the shoe salesman. It didn't look like it was doing anybody any harm until the shoe salesman started coming down with all kinds of problems and cancers. Sin is like that. Sin is damaging to us even if we don't recognize it immediately. God does recognize it, which is why he warns us about it. Primarily, the damage of sin is to the closeness of our walk with God. Now, sin does not affect your relationship with God as a child, nor does it affect how much God loves you. There's a difference between love and approval. God's love for you never varies. God's acceptance of you as his child never varies. But sin does affect the closeness of your walk with God. Now let's talk about crimes. Crime is something that society decides upon. Generally speaking, to be a crime, it has to have an adverse effect on another person or on property. Here's an example between of the difference between sin and crimes. The first and great commandment, according to Jesus Christ, is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does everybody do that? No. Not even Christians love him with their whole, whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And many people reject God outright. Should these people be arrested? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. That sin should not be classified as a crime, and it's not classified as a crime. That being said, I want to go back to pornography and prostitution. How you view prostitution as a moral choice depends on how you view sex. Is sex nothing more than a physical act for enjoyment? If that's the case, a prostitute isn't really much different than hiring a chef to cook in your home. But God has a different view. And sex is much more than pleasurable. It certainly is that, but it's much more in God's design. God designed sex to be a part of the bond between a husband and a wife in their covenant of marriage. It is an act of intimacy designed to reinforce that covenant of marriage. This bonding is physical, it is emotional, and it is spiritual, and it occurs whether you want it to to occur or not. In, I think it's First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks about prostitution, which everybody knew, all the Jews knew, and the Christians, that this was not a good thing. But he uses it uh, as an example. And he says that anyone who visits a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. In other words, a bond begins to be formed. This is true even though men do not visit prostitutes with the intent of long-term attachments. On another side, you've probably had a friend who would not leave an abusive relationship. Everybody knew this guy was a complete loser and train wreck, and yet she wouldn't leave him. Why is that? And many times people will say, well, I just don't understand. Well, I understand perfectly why she wouldn't leave him. They have been forming a bond through sex. Now, these kinds of inappropriate bonds can be broken in Christ. And often during the course of counseling, I lead people to break these bonds so that they can be free from the bonds of their past and move into their present and future free and clear with God. God condemns prostitution as a twisting and a distortion of his design for sex. Now, God doesn't change his mind about prostitution depending on what the authorities consider it to be a crime or not. You know, in Illinois, prostitution is a crime. In parts of Nevada, prostitution is legal. For God, it's a sin both places. It's a wrong moral, moral choice both places. Just because something is legal does not mean that it is holy or moral. That's where you have to get the difference here. You are probably getting the idea that holiness and godly morality are based on how God has ordered the universe. He is the creator. And He describes how He orders His universe in His Word. So that's prostitution. That's a pretty easy one. How about pornography? Pornography is almost universally legal. But unlike prostitution, God does not address pornography directly in his words. You can't do a word search in your Bible for pornography. It's not going to appear. So how do we determine if consuming pornography is a good or a bad moral choice? Now, the world has made its choice. As a matter of convenience, pleasure, and consensus, pornography is considered to be just fine in most circles of the world today. What about God? How might God view this? Even though he doesn't say something directly about it, how might he view it? Even though the word pornography is never used in Scripture, we can get a picture of what God might think about this by reading, I'll read you a verse in Job, and then I'm going to read you a verse from the Gospels, a couple of verses, where Jesus Christ describes something. Job 31.1. It says, I made a covenant with my eyes... Meaning, I decided that with my eyes I would not look lustfully at a young woman. I decided I would not look lustfully. To look lustfully means to desire her sexually. That's what it's talking about here. People, they talk about undressing a woman with their eyes, or they fantasize about what she would be like in bed. That's what it's talking about here. Job made a covenant with his eyes. I'm just not going to do that. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus is talking, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. All the Jews he was talking to had heard that. They're all patting themselves on the back. You're right, Jesus. Yep, you shall not commit adultery. And I don't commit adultery. So, well, before they finish self-congratulating, Jesus goes on to say, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why do people, mostly men, view pornography? They view pornography for the exact reason that Jesus has just explained, to look at a woman with lustful intent. To put it delicately, men look at pornography for sexual stimulation and self-induced orgasm. But is this simply a private act with no other consequences, a matter of personal preference and convenience and pleasure? Or is there more behind this, more behind Jesus' warning? In Matthew chapter 5, Christ is talking about looking at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her. That is to desire something that you have no right to pursue or receive. That is the reason that most men look at pornography. Now, by the way, seeing an attractive woman and being tempted to desire her is not sin. It is looking at, gazing at, intently gazing at, with the purpose of lusting that Jesus is talking about. And he warns us about it. Not to be restrictive. God warns us about it because it is damaging. It is damaging in a lot of ways. It will damage your marriage if you're married. But the sexual bonding that I spoke about that occurs when a man visits a prostitute, that can happen with lust, not just intercourse. Ask God to show you the line between admiration and lust. He'll do that for you. Now, another issue that comes up along these lines is homosexuality, which is greatly pushed today. The devil pushes homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle or as an answer to the hurts and abuses that people have suffered in their lives. Homosexuality, as a moral choice from the world's point of view, is a convenient preference, and the world says it's just fine. But let me tell you, no one is born as a homosexual or transgender, for that matter. That's more uh, being promoted today. God made humans male and female. The body gets it right. It is the mind that is confused and deceived. Homosexuality, more than anything else, is an identity crisis, not a genetic destiny. God calls homosexual acts sin, and God doesn't call anything sin unless it's damaging, and unless you have a choice in the matter. Now, many areas of the Christian church spend their time condemning people who are trapped in homosexuality. Or on the other side of the coin in Christianity, they celebrate the so-called brave choices that people make when they come out with their new sexual identity. What we need, what God needs for the church to do, we need people who will love them, and love them enough to bring them to a delivering knowledge of Jesus Christ, and to do that without judgment or condemnation. That's what people need. By the way, something that you often hear when you talk about morality is that neither the government or the church should get involved in the activities that go on between two consenting adults. Now certainly, from the viewpoint of being a crime, the government should stay clear of trying to order people's private lives. But I am not really interested in crimes. I am interested in living a holy life, a life that is a glory to God, a life that is enjoyable, blessed, and abundant. I am interested in that, not crimes. And let me tell you something. Consensual sin is still sin. Your agreement about the sin changes nothing. It might change from a world's point of view. It might change whether it is a crime or not, but it doesn't change God's view of a holy life. So as you can see, the world has come to many different moral choices than we might conclude from looking at God's word. The world is offended, and the world is critical of God's ways and of holiness. There's no surprises there. The world is critical of anything that interrupts their pursuit of their own pleasure and their own independence. So, the next topic that I want to talk about, since I might as well hit hit all the hot-button topics, I'd like to talk about abortion as a moral choice and how you might view that through the lens of godly morality and holiness. I am not interested in pursuing the argument of abortion as a crime or not a crime. I am looking at it as a moral choice before God. Now, the word abortion, like the word pornography, is not found in Scripture. So how then are we going to approach this subject, which is a needful subject for us to understand? And God says that in His Word He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So even though the word abortion is not included in Scripture... The truths that will help us make a moral choice about abortion are contained in Scripture. Now, in the first century, Paul was faced with a question about marriage in a time of very extreme distress that was going on in the city of Corinth. And there were no Scriptures that covered that particular scenario. And God did not choose to reveal anything to Paul that would then become a standard moving forward. Instead, God, here's what God had Paul do. It's in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. It says, Now concerning the betrothed, again, this was about marriage, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. Paul's giving his judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So, in this instance, in talking to you about abortion, I might say, now concerning abortion, I see no specific command in Scripture, but I will give you my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, let's think of this through a little bit about pregnancy and abortion. Men and women who want to have children view the fetus as a human. Those who do not want to have children somehow convince themselves otherwise. They somehow decide that the fetus is not fully human and therefore is disposable by choice, preference, or convenience. Now, this choice is supported by a growing number of people around the world. In fact, this preference is now being promoted as a right. Again, I am not concerned about the laws. I'm just concerned about holiness, and I'm speaking to Christians. Now, I want to define abortion for you. And I want to define it within a biblical context. So, when I'm speaking to you about abortion, I am speaking about the termination of a pregnancy for non-medical reasons. There are certainly medical reasons that would require you to terminate a pregnancy. One example of this would be an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is when the fertilized egg, the embryo, does not implant in the uterus. Instead, it affixes itself to the fallopian tube. What happens then is, as the embryo grows, as the fetus grows, it breaks out of the fallopian tube, the fetus dies, and if the woman is not right near to a hospital, she will bleed out and die as well. That is what happens with an ectopic pregnancy. And how do we approach this? Well, I approach it like I would approach triage. Triage is when you have to assign urgency to a large group of people who are in critical need and need critical care. In the case of an ectopic pregnancy, you can either guarantee the loss of two lives by doing nothing, or you can save one life by terminating the pregnancy. The pregnancy, by the way, will never be viable. An ectopic pregnancy cannot be viable. Now, I do not consider that to be a difficult moral choice. It is a painful moral choice, but it is not difficult. And these types of medical reasons are few. The world considers non-medical reasons for terminating a pregnancy, and that's what I'm calling abortion. And that is a moral choice. Abortion is a moral choice based on a matter of personal preference, convenience, pleasure, and consensus. Moral choices about abortion in the world, or actually for anyone, actually hinge on how you view bearing a child in pregnancy and how you view humans in general. Is the fetus a living human child? That's the principal question. At one point in my life, I had been taught and I believed that the word life in the Bible meant breath life, and that if you... Had not taken a breath yet, you were not really alive. That, I have come to understand, was a gross distortion of the meaning of the Greek word for life, and it opens up the door to view abortion as merely a matter of personal preference and convenience, and that's where the world still views it to this day. How can we derive a biblical view about this? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female he created them. Now if you don't believe in God or you reject him, then this verse doesn't matter to you. But I'm not speaking to people who direct God, who reject God. I believe this verse. And this verse reflects how I view all of humanity. I view all of humanity as created in the image of God and therefore must be respected. Look at Exodus 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. Abortion ends an innocent life as a matter of personal preference and convenience. And, by the way, abortion is a secondary problem or a secondary sin. You see, sin has a means of compounding itself. Think about the story of David and Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba while he was walking on his roof. Their roofs were flat. He was walking on his roof. He saw this beautiful woman, and he had her brought up to the palace where he committed adultery with her, which was a sin. It's one of the big ten. And then after he committed adultery, he then further went on to lie. And after he lied, he went on to kill this woman's husband. So he, command, he compounded his sin by lying and by murder. That's not a good way to go about. Virtually all abortion is the result of sexual immorality, either consensual immorality Or forced immorality. Forced immorality would be rape and incest. Now, I agree that it is unfair that the woman bears the burden of sexual sins that are against her. But you know something? All of life is unfair. And the solution is not additional unfairness. It is a quest for holiness. Now, I know I'm going against our culture in this. The question is, what does God think is holy in all this fog? I don't say any of this, by the way, to condemn people. And I do not care to get involved in deciding whether abortion is a crime or not. It's it's not on my table. It's not something I'm interested in. Here's the thing. If you want to decrease abortion, make more disciples, and help people understand life as Christ lived it, Sin always complicates life, whereas holiness simplifies and blesses life. Now, I know, I know that some people who hear this will have had an abortion and may be suffering guilt over it. I have had the privilege of counseling men and women over the years regarding this, and the solution to abortion guilt, or any guilt for that matter, is forgiveness. First, it is receiving God's forgiveness and cleansing. It says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first we receive God's forgiveness and cleansing, and then we forgive ourselves as well. You can make your own decision about all these issues using the world's approach of personal preference, convenience, pleasure, and cultural consensus. Or you can take what I consider to be the easier and more rewarding approach of ignoring the noise and allowing God to direct your steps to his word. Now I want to wrap this up. And I want to do that by saying holiness is not a negative thing. That is what the devil wants you to believe. All the devil wants is to get you to focus on what you are not doing or what you don't have. That's exactly what Eve was in the garden. Eve was put in a place called paradise designed by God to meet all of human need. There was one thing that she didn't have, and that was th- to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So she focused everything on the one thing that she didn't have, which, by the way, she didn't need anyway. She had a knowledge of good. Adding a knowledge of evil to that brought you nowhere. But this is what the devil wants you to do. If, if, some, if something you want is good... If the thing that you want and desire will enhance your life, then God will give it to you. He will not withhold any good thing from you. In James 1.17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If it is light, if it is holy, if it is good for you, God will give it to you. I choose to focus on what holiness brings to my life because let me tell you something, holiness doesn't take anything good away from me. But holiness brings me a closer relationship with God. It brings me joy and peace and love and simplicity. That's how I want to live my life. You ever see people, they talk about their lives, oh, well, it's complicated. Well, they even had a movie by that name. It's complicated. Life with God is not designed to be complicated. It's designed to be joyous, fulfilling, and straightforward. And I want to close with a couple of verses on the benefits of holiness. This time I'm going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. People have a lot to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself to godliness, which is another way of looking at holiness. Train yourself to godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, I enjoy exercise, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Living a holy life is is the way to be blessed in your day-to-day present, and living a holy life is a way to enjoy more blessings in the future, in eternity with God. So why should we pursue holiness? Why should we make this our choice? Well, because God is love, and His plan for you is going to be the best. God is all-knowing. And God has already considered all the options and alternatives before revealing to you his word and his will. And third, God is all-powerful, and he will enable you to carry out his will and to enjoy the life that he designed for you to live, a life that is holy, fulfilled, and joyous. Well, I'd like to close this in prayer. Father God, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for the joy of knowing your will in our lives. I pray, God, that we can understand how to read your word and how to make the choices in life that would line up with representing Jesus Christ, not only so that we can be blessed in this life, but that the, so our lives can be a glory to you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.